the overturning of Roe v. Wade has shown us that the issue is not done. We are not all on the same page. We don't all agree. And we have our own deeply passionately held perspectives, no matter which side of the issue we stand on. Well, today we'll be talking with Patrice D'Amato, an RN, a nurse who has worked in abortion clinics for years. And she's going to give us the human side of the equation from the view of the clinic. Join us to find out more. Before we start this episode, I, Carrie Hummingbird, and I, Akeem Sami, want you to know that you are invited. You're invited to, to join, join Soul Nectar, Nectar Tribe. If you like what you hear on Soul Nectar Show, you will love being in person with us in Soul Nectar Tribe. We invite you to check it out. First 30 days is free. Right now, go to carryhummingbird.com, K-E-R-R-I, hummingbird.com, forward slash membership, and sign up. We'll, we'll see you at our, our next, next tribe gathering. gathering. And now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Soul Nectar Show, that show where we talk about all things essence, where we gather around the campfire and we share our stories of connection to that which is greater than us, to the big mystery beyond the veil, to those synchronistic moments that lead us inexorably towards a deeper understanding of ourselves and life and this planet and what we are here for and all the myriad ways that that soul curriculum shows up in Earth School. I'm your host, Carrie Hummingbird. And today's conversation is a challenging one for most human beings because it's really that conversation at the edge of our comfort zone of life and death. And, and it involves babies and, you know, what can be more precious than babies? We all rush to protect the babies and we all love the babies. And, you know, there's another person involved in that conversation and that would be the woman and the womb. And, you know, we are really going to be venturing into a conversation that in many ways has become the holy war for the womb. Who gets control over the womb? And uh, you, we're going to have a really an interesting conversation with a current nurse that is actually working, has worked in abortion clinics for many, many years and has lots of information and lots of personal experience on the actual stories of people's paths through that decision of abortion. And she's here with us today uh, as her new book is out, The View from the Clinic, and how this is intended to humanize the act of abortion from the eyes and heart of a clinic nurse. And, and today with us is Patrice Diamato, RN. Hi, Patrice, how Hi. are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be here. I know it takes a lot of courage to 
publish a book about this topic and to put all of this information into the collective that feels passionately from many points of view about this topic. And I know that you've probably had to straddle many, many lines in order to to be courageous and to put this message forth. So I want to first say thank you so much for being willing to put this information together and also for the courage in your heart to show up and be visible and present for this conversation as well. It's good to be here. I don't think I wanted to be here, but here I am. (laughs) Yeah, here I am anyway. You say that in the book, actually. You're like, I didn't even want to write this book. No, I did not really want to write the book. The book was being asked to be, it was, they asked me, you know, please write this. Really not asked. I was told it's time. And I started this book three, four years ago, really, long before the advent of all this crazy political stuff started rearing its head. And when it, you know, came to getting to publish, I was thinking about it last February, and I kind of thought maybe Roe versus Wade was gonna was gonna drop, and and I knew that this book then would coincide with. Um, you know, the publishing of it, the release of it would be right around the time when all of this political stuff was going on. And that was further confirmation for me that this isn't about my comfort. It's about me doing the best I can to normalize this conversation. You talked about my history a little bit. I I worked in abortion care about 20 years ago, about eight years full-time in a variety of capacities, but mostly as a nurse and nurse practitioner. I walked away. It was so frustrating. It's very routine, very normal, very really boring medical care. It's not that hard. But the stories that went around it, the culture of misunderstanding and passion around this very everyday thing, people weren't ready or what I had to say. And so, and I wasn't ready to say what I had to say. I had to process it all. So I tucked it all under my belt and I went about my way for about 15 or 20 years. I went into teaching. I did some geriatrics, you know, I did a variety of things. And then about three or four years ago, during the Me Too movement, it came back and I realized I couldn't listen anymore to the rhetoric. I couldn't get my head around it as a nurse because it was so far removed from the world that I knew in terms of abortion. So what are some key differences that you notice in the rhetoric from what's what's some key differences that you're like, this is just not the experience inside the clinic? Yeah. So, you know, I, I always talk about my last day and I talk about this poignantly in my in the book, which was a healing journey for really for me. But I the last day, my last straw day was, you know, I'm going into work just like a nurse goes into work, right? I, I was going to go change into my scrubs, take care of patients, do, you know, screen them for any, you know, medical problems for a very simple outpatient procedure. And as I'm walking in, walking through the parking lot, the protesters, it was the third Sunday of the month and they were wild that day, wild, you know, shaking the the signs with the baby doll limbs hanging off of them and chanting and some people spit at you um, and this this craziness. And there were people, all kinds of people, but most prominently, and we know this, are older white men. We could talk about that if we wanted, but we don't have to. And then, you know, and some parent looking people. And then I go into the waiting room, I kind of, and I 
just looked around at the, it looks like the deli counter before Christmas. I always say that there's just all of humanity there needing what they need. But most poignantly, I saw, you know, the usual smattering of teenagers or, or young adults. And I thought, what the heck? Their parents are outside waving baby doll limbs. And this is just a, a medical clinic, like where we're doing what we need to do. And it, the disconnect was just so powerful for me. Uh, you know, the passion and the the fear as I've said, it's a holy war. You know, the people outside are waging a holy war. I say this is the era of fetal worship. We're worshiping, or some are worshiping the fetus, and they feel like they're conducting this holy war to save the babies. And when you look at the history of this, this is new. It is not a phenomenon that we have seen until recently, maybe like the last 100, 150 years or so. This was not a holy war of any sort. People didn't believe that life started at conception. It was not a thing. So, you know, there's that. And then there's just the whole medical aspect. It's really like a woman having a miscarriage. It's a spontaneous abortion is the medical term for a a miscarriage. So, uh, you know, whether it's spontaneous or elective, it's still abortion. And it, so for me, it just, it, it fascinates me. Yeah. So how do you explain this? I mean, I know that you did a lot of research to write your book and, and you did research into what were the prevailing attitudes about abortion previously. And you found some interesting things actually in the Catholic religion, which was really fascinating. I read in the book, share a little bit about that with us. Yeah. So this isn't unusual knowledge. It's not esoteric. It is right out there. And if you want to look at a great PBS documentary, there's tons of stuff out here. This is not a secret. And even the Catholic Church knows that it's not a secret. They don't talk about it much. But so up until recently, and I'm going to say about 100, 150 years ago, the Catholic Church believed that a fetus wasn't ensouled, meaning it didn't get a soul until about 40 days after conception for a male and 80 days after conception for a female. Why that is, I didn't dig deep enough for that. But um, it came from Aristotle, then uh, St. Augustine in the fifth century, I believe, picked it up. And then it was picked up again by Thomas Aquinas. I think I'm saying that right. I'm not Catholic by background. And that was what, maybe the 17th century. So that attitude held for hundreds, thousands of years, really, that, you know, there's no ensoulment that a fetus is not, does not have a soul until almost halfway through a pregnancy. And most people believed as strongly as people believe today that it begins, you know, at conception, the very strongly held belief was that there's no problem with terminating a pregnancy before quickening. So quickening is when the mother can actually feel the movement of the fetus inside. And at that point, it did become a problem. But up until that time, this whole thing about the sanctity of an egg being fertilized by a sperm is very new. And that shocked me when I started to write the book. And, you know, I have a lot of compassion for why people feel so drawn to that. 
I have my thoughts about that. I think that people are really identifying with the sanctity of their own lives and they're really terrified of the thought that they weren't allowed to come or somebody, a woman, their mother is going to annihilate them. So that's sort of where I, I, my thoughts and my, my writing sort of went. Yeah. This whole idea that the, the power of the woman, right. And this concerted effort to diminish the power of women out of fear of what choices women might make. Right. And so trying to force over power over women to prevent them from making choices and then not really seeing that that's actually um, aggression towards women. You know, it's uh, very aggressive towards women. It's misogynistic in such the same way that maybe in some countries women would be. And as we've seen in all of the things going on in Iran, women have been beaten to death for not wearing their hijab. And now we have this whole protest going on nationwide in Iran because their people, they're very, they're just done with this kind of militaristic, misogynistic behavior towards women. And so this is not this, this is the same because, you know, if, if a man in that culture doesn't like what a woman's doing, he doesn't like what, what, how she's wearing her scarf, he can kill her. And now in America, in many states, we have the same. If a woman is pregnant, she, and she needs, support inside her body in order to survive the pregnancy, she cannot have it now because now she is no longer given the choice to protect her own life and her own health because it's been taken away by this sort of dogmatic, misogynistic point of view. And so I am equating the two. I'm saying they're the same. What do you feel about that? Is that a little too extreme or is that pretty much accurate? I don't think it's extreme at all. I actually had never really thought of it that way. But when you say it that way, yeah, because what we're seeing too is not only is the woman not allowed to, to choose, but the medical team is totally confused with their hands tied in many cases. You know, I, I talked about recently, I, you know, and I was, I was remembering, you know, a patient that I took care of when I was young. And this equates exactly to what's happening to women's bodies and to the medical team that's trying to care for them. So when I was 16, I had a patient who it was my very first, I was like a nurse's aide. And they put me in this room with this man who, who had a gangrene, gangrenous leg and his family refused to amputate it. Now take getting rid of that leg, even if it had just been at the ankle, it would have saved his life, but no, they refused. And they insisted that the that they couldn't take the foot or they couldn't take the, it kept creeping up, you know, this dead tissue and it will kill the person. And so the other day I said, oh my goodness, this is exactly what's happening to women with a fetus or a pregnancy that has, you know, gone bad. And so these women are forced to carry until their life is in danger. This is bizarre to me. And it is not so different, I don't think, like you said, than what's happening, you know, if a woman doesn't wear her scarf right. But we have the medical team involved now too, who's standing there saying, well, what point the laws are, they're just open to interpretation and people are confused. And so it's the exact same thing. We're standing in our modern high-tech hospitals trying to decide when is this woman going to get seriously ill, get an infection from this dying fetus inside. At what point are we going to then save this mother? And I mean, it, there's no point. It, the, 
there's the fetus isn't viable anyway. So like, what the heck? I agree with you. Yeah, I, and I've and it takes the choice out of the women, right? I mean, so all these women wearing hijabs that don't choose to wear one are forced to wear one in order to assuage the beliefs and uh, perspectives of the government that is controlling them. And in such the same way, now in several states in this uh, United States, women are forced into a perspective that they may not hold about the fetus and about their power of choice. I heard from many Jewish people who said, we don't believe the way Christians believe. And so we do not think that this country should embrace Christian religious perspective when there are people in this country of many different religious and spiritual traditions. And we are supposed to be a country that is freedom of religion. And instead, we're starting to see the infiltration of one particular perspective dominating our law. And we're supposed to have a division of church and state in this country. So, I mean, what, what's your answer to that? Because that seems to be, I know that you mentioned in your book that there was a Native American who was like pro-abortion. Like we're, we're you know, and I, I can see that perspective too, because we have too many people on the planet just procreating willy-nilly and we're far consuming uh, the resources over our relations. You know, we don't even consider the plants and the animals and the insects and all the other life forms on this planet. We're just dominate everything thinking that we're like the most important being on the planet, right? And so the Native American perspective is probably kind of along those lines, like, yes, let's stop being a virus on Mother Earth. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I agree with you. And when I was saying to my husband this morning, I said, you know, gardening, and I have that whole first chapter. One day I was out of my garden and I'm thinning, I'm pulling perfectly healthy plants because they're weeds to me. They're weeds to me. And you have to thin them in order for others to grow. And maybe the ones that you selected, the ones you went to the farm market or the garden store and you put in specifically to grow. And then there's all these other things that are perfectly healthy, but we, you know, we don't want them. And there are a lot of people who believe that the human, you know, humans are above that, but I don't believe that. I think that we're all living beings and there is always stewardship about how we decide when to thin things. And can you do that with sensitivity? Can you do that with honoring, you know, the life force that might've been I believe you totally can. And um, yeah, this is kind of, I mean, this is why we have science that is able to detect in advance harmful, life-restricting, life-constricting diseases in babies before they become born, before they have to then face an entire lifetime of being punished in that way, really painfully punished to be in a body with those kinds of diseases. And now we are not able to be compassionate. We're not able to be stewards of the children coming in because of these dogmatic laws. So I'm sure you have an example of someone who came in and, and the choice was because this baby is is going to be suffering its whole life if it's born. Oh, absolutely. And that's just you know, happened not long ago. And that's very often those what they call a late term abortion, which really, it's only halfway through a pregnancy when somebody's saying it's late term. So I don't really know what that 
late term means, but it happens all the time. And for the parents that are going through this, it's not easy if you've gotten that far along. But the thought of, like you said, it's it may be torture for the the, the child, and it's certainly torture and agony for the parents. And it may be a beautiful experience. I do know of people who have had severely disabled children and and they feel that the way it worked for them, it, it was a deep spiritual experience. But on the other hand, there's so much suffering and it's not an easy choice to make at all. So I have, I see these patients come in and with, you know, late term, and they're usually coming from out of state because where I am, we do up to 24 weeks, but it's, when you get that far, it's, it's rare. It's only about 10% of all, maybe less. Actually, it's way less um, when you get that late, maybe about 5% of all abortions. And it's devastating. It's not an easy decision to make. And I think what's happening is that politicians are getting involved because they don't trust women's judgment about what that experience is going to be like for them, for the child, for the family, for the world. We're not trusting women or we're very, very frightened of women having that kind of power. Yeah. So again, it comes back to not trusting women to make the best decision for themselves and for their families. And thinking that you know better for someone than they know for themselves. And I know that, you know, I don't know a whole lot about religion, but I know that there's a lot of verses in the Bible about not casting the first stone and not being the judge of your brothers and sisters, like you know better to do than they know. And yet here, the sort of fundamentalists have jumped on the back with the politicians and found a really convenient way to judge every single woman as incapable of making the right choice for herself and for her family. Yeah. And they've also stymied the medical team or medical experts, scientists. So there's also that whole piece of it because, you know, we used to be pretty paternalistic in the medical world, like, oh, well, we know what's best. And I think a lot of up until recently, politicians were like, okay, well, we'll trust the experts, but we don't have that anymore either, which, you know, there's good and bad to that, I suppose, as well. So yeah, we don't really have any of that anymore. So we have a a handful of fundamentalists who are feeling really good about this. I can just feel the, you know, that. The righteousness. Yeah, it feels so good. It's like, oh, we don't get to do holy wars anymore. And we don't get to run around and save the unborn or save someone. And so they're really getting their chops into this, that we're going out and we're saving these babies from these untimely deaths. And it's, it's distorted. It's a little misplaced, but it's a, an energy that comes from, from millennia, I think. Yeah. And, and it's that scratch that, you know, they need to like scratch that itch. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. I need to get righteous about this and I need to fight that devil and I need to get out there and just show them the way. And, and that kind of holy war, like we talked about over the womb, And even the womb of an 11-year-old child who's raped by her father. You know, this is where I have a problem with the fundamentalist pro-lifers because I don't think it's pro-life to have a child's body carry a baby and go through that metamorphosis that I went through at 30 years old and was challenged by. 
with full responsibility and knowing. I think that lacks care and compassion for the child girl who is taken by her father or her brother or somebody else in her family, rapes her, and then there's a baby of that. And I've I've heard just the most coldest, closed-hearted people so passionate about saving the babies and yet have zero regard for these molested children doesn't compute for me. How did you cope with that? It doesn't compute for me either. And I have had, yes, young 11, I think is the youngest I ever had. And again, where I live, I was able to live through that. And I still am because I still get patients that young. I'm able to live through that because we're we're allowed to terminate the pregnancy. Um, And even then it's, you know, when you sit in front of that 11 year old and you have to try to figure out what happened, I usually have a sense of that from the counselors and all the preoperative pre-procedure work that's done, but it blows my mind. And I, I usually, at some point I have to step out and take a deep breath and then I got to I got to do what I got to do to help this little girl get through this, bring your teddy bear, bring whatever you want into that room to do what you need to do. So for me, I can do that and give this, this kid a new start. It's never completely new, but it's way better than them potentially dying because somebody wants them to carry another child. It's like a child carrying a child neither one is going to do well. And it's, as you said, it's not risk-free for a a child of 11 to be pregnant and carry that through to a full-term pregnancy. It's just not. So you're, again, you're dooming the mother, the owner of the womb is doomed in this situation. There's no good way out for them. And like you said, I have heard the rhetoric as well. And I think the whole world is open mouth saying, wait a minute, okay, you don't like abortion, but rape and incest and and what? We're all just open mouth. I don't think anybody could get their head around this bandwagon that people have jumped on. It's so distorted and so extremist. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's actually really sad to me that there's people in our in our world who have closed their hearts to the little girls who have been raped you know an 11-year-old child is not responsible for turning some geezer on and getting impregnated like that's not her fault and the same with you know women who find themselves in that scenario at whatever age, you know, like um, get the the roofie, you know, and then end up pregnant. And certainly there are many, many women who I'm sure make mistakes, right? Don't take care of themselves, are not proactive with uh, birth control. The stories are all over the map. And this is where I come in and I ask the question with so much contextual information for each case with so much context and the relevance of that context, how can you just make one decision for everyone? That's the part I don't understand because I feel like that really lacks compassion and empathy for the particulars of each individual case. Yeah. 
And that's where the quagmire is. That's where people are stuck. Their hearts are not open. They're not capable of hearing the stories. They're just not. You know, it's interesting. I went to my my doctor the other day and she's very, very pro-life. And it was a really interesting conversation. It's not that she doesn't refer people for abortion. She does, but it's very painful for her. And in her world as a physician, she feels like, you know, she's saving another human by talking somebody out of having an abortion, whatever. And um, it was really difficult conversation for me because, again, because of the lack of trusting a, a woman, a pregnant person to decide what is best for them at that moment in time. And it may, yeah, you may regret it later either way. Often, if you regret something, it's because of the cultural things that are heaped on you. I will say that. So you're not going to feel terribly guilty if it's, uh, you know, if you choose to either have a baby or have an abortion and society is supporting you and respecting you or that you did the best you could at that point in your life. But we're not, we don't do that, do we? We, we pass judgment. And so it, this is all held in secret and in shame. And no wonder there's people who are, you know, wondering years later, should I, should I have had an abortion or, oh my gosh, maybe I did the wrong thing. That's all contextual. It's all cultural. And it's all stemming from a lack of support and respect for people trying to have done the best they could at any point in time in their life. And I do, you know, I walked away and I was really angry at my physician who really believed that she's, you know, doing the best she can by trying to present another view. And I realized in the end, we really were coming at this the same way. We, I mean, at, in the end, we were trying to help our patients by exploring different avenues. You know, it wasn't like she wasn't kind of, let's, you know, she was, you know, trying to talk people vehemently out of it. She was, you know, signing her clearances for abortions and all. But I tried to get into that mindset. And what I really got from her is fear. It was fear. It's fear for her own life. It's fear that somebody would have aborted her and she wouldn't have gotten her shot. That's what it really boils down to. And it was so painful for her to think about me writing this book and the topic. You could see she was like, oh, oh, like it, it was painful to think about the babies that didn't get their chance. And I, I thought, wow, you're not very courageous here for being a physician and seeing the things that you see. That's not terribly courageous. And yet it's okay. It was who she was in that moment. But it's like that. I can't. I, la, 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 don't tell me your story. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. And that's what we're dealing with on the political and religious, you know, right. That's what I think. Yeah. And I think you and I talked about this when we had our conversation, our pre-show conversation, but I feel that this is a level of understanding at a soul level, actually, of who we are. Because when we're younger souls, we believe that we are separate and we are conditioned usually in those cases in environments that lead us to believe that we are separate from each other. We are separate from the planet. We are separate from divinity. God is up in the clouds. We have to pray and beg for everything. And if we do it wrong, we're going to get sent to hell. And so we believe in these really like these dualistic energies, the good and the bad, the 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 right and the wrong, the evil and the and the blessed. And 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 it's a very black and white polarized 
understanding of things is a very literalist understanding. Because if you look at little children, little children also follow that same pathway. They have to learn the rules. First, we do A and then we do B. And, you know, and when they're like five, they start telling you the rules. And that's kind of what we're seeing in the same behavior of these fundamentalists and these, you know, these extreme people is that same level of thinking, that that dogmatic literalist thinking. But when you start to expand and mature as a soul and as a person, you start to realize that um, you're more than just your body. You're more than just your mind. You're actually connected to everything alive on the planet and in the galaxy. And you're, you are divine. You are part of the divine. And you start to have this uh, realization that you're, that you have energy that infuses your body. Well, where does that come from? And if you've ever seen anybody die up close that you loved, you know, they're there and they're breathing and you can feel them. And then suddenly they're gone and their body's there, but you don't feel them anymore. It's like, that's the moment you realize they are not their body. They are something other than their body. So all this fear of death has to do with that really simplistic young soul idea of who they are. And so, yes, we have to go through that phase of understanding ourselves in that way. But now it's kind of time to wake up from that and move into a more mature curriculum, which is that we're well beyond this one lifetime and we're well beyond this body. And, you know, there's all kinds of work out there right now helping people to understand themselves in that that greater way. What's your, I see you're like, you're like really like, I want to oh, yeah. dive into this conversation. So, so go at it, Patrice. Yeah, yeah. So I really do. I, it was so healing for me to do the end of my book that some people are like, huh, I don't know what she's talking about <laughs> because it's a lot of that because, and I love that when we talked about young souls, you know, no matter how old you are chronologically in this world, we still have people who are really young souls at 70 and we have really old advanced souls who are too, right? And I think that the further you get into that, the more you can release into the fluidity between worlds. And so if there are souls passing through a body, it's okay. You're going to get another shot if that's what you, you know, your soul has really done its work on. So I talk a little bit about that at the end of the book. And there's actually medical, um, a whole medical department, I think it's University of Virginia, that is looking at kids who talk out of nowhere about past life experiences. And I won't give away everything from my this chapter in the book, but the thought that some of these little souls were, were starting maybe in the same mom and then later on deciding to come back when the time is right. But for me, I did hear a story like that years ago. And it really, for me, it helped me so much to think about that it's okay. It's okay. If you're not coming around this time, maybe we'll meet again. And the level of compassion that these little beings, little sparks that aren't, you know, quite here yet. And there's a tremendous amount of compassion that can come from these little sparks of energy that that get a chance again if they want and if you want. And I, I also talk about the documentary on PBS Frontline. It's excellent of a woman who was pregnant with twins and she so bravely went on a PBS documentary to talk to her her body that day in the abortion clinic. And she said, I, I'm so honored that you chose me 
really, I am both of you, but it's not my, it's not time right now. I need to pass on this offer. And I thought, wow, yeah, you know, and to give yourself permission um, to say, thank you for this opportunity, but I really, I can't take the job right now, maybe next time. So for me, that's incredibly healing and incredibly liberating, but I don't know where all our young souls are with that. And I don't know what your thoughts are about something like that. No, I actually resonate with that. There's been many cases of uh, women that I've talked to who lost a baby to miscarriage, right? And, And that is devastating for the mother. You know, it's just really hard for her to want that baby so much and then have the baby decide to leave. Have the baby decide not to come. Have the baby decide, the soul decide, hey, this this fetus I've been developing is not um, viable for me in this lifetime. It's, it's not the right time for me to come. And so this is where I get excited. You know, I get excited about people waking up to realize that they are souls, they are sovereign beings, and that they cannot really be forced into anything. Maybe temporarily have the experience of being forced, but like not really. And that this is a negotiation between souls. It's like this soul wants to come through the mother and it's, it's, you know, it's working to create a viable fetus for itself to come through. And maybe it might take it five, six, seven times in order to create that viable fetus that it's looking for to come into the lifetime. It could be that, that the mother needs an initiation into motherhood. And, and the soul wants the womb to have that initiation before it actually comes through, right? So, you know, mothers can experience these just really traumatic, repeated experiences of like miscarriage, right? And now to compound all that trauma, they're being told, oh, well, you can't have this unviable fetus inside of you removed and it has to come out at birth, even though it's dead for like the last three months in your body. That's just extra torture. Like, I don't think anybody should have to be put through that. So once again, you know, I, I, I'm excited to see the consciousness raising on the planet, the realization of who we are in truth and the end of this victimization story, you know, the end of this victim rescuer perpetrator story that has these literalist young souls, like really up in arms, like you can't do that to me, you know? (laughs) And it's like, well, you're a temporary existence. You know, you're wonderful. You're beautiful. You're like that flower that was in my vase last week. And then it died. And then I took it out to the garden, buried it. And then I bought some new flowers. We have to really get comfortable with our own mortality and our own transience and, and our own, you know, yes, you're important. Yes, you're beautiful. Yes, you're wonderful. And someday you're going to die. And then guess what? There'll be another lifetime that your soul will experience. So it's like this dance between the ego and the soul that we're opening that many people are opening to right now and been kind of ignorant of. They thought that they were just the personality. They didn't realize they had this other like massive consciousness moving through them. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's a real reckoning. And my gut feeling about all this is it's, it is a very temporary and strange clamp down it's too late. You know, this is the last hurrah for these these crazy wars against women. It's desperation is what it is. It's an artificial desperation that cannot last. It cannot be sustained because too many people in this world are waking up. They are, you know, and this is pretty extreme because it's really desperate um, trying to keep the lid on things that Pandora's box is open. 
And so this is a last desperate attempt because, and it doesn't even make any sense. It's not, you know, it's not really beneficial for, for anyone, but it's like, but I don't care. I, you know, we need to, we need to engage in holy war, not even really thinking about what it is because it is so desperate. And the most interesting thing is that these same people will want to prevent the very thing that would prevent unexpected pregnancies, like education, not having, you know, having young, young girls be educated about sex, having family systems be healed so that there's no more rape and molestation. I mean, all the things that actually would solve the problem, nobody wants to do that. They just want to prevent the outcome. And that's where I get really righteous myself. Like I have my own version of righteousness, which is that if you're going to complain or try to block the outcome you don't want, why aren't you doing anything about all the things that lead up to that outcome? Why aren't you doing anything about family systems? Why aren't you changing the misogyny? Why aren't you teaching girls to be empowered about their bodies? Why teaching them? It's not okay for people to touch you there. If they do run away, scream, tell somebody. Why aren't you training girls that? Why aren't yeah. you training them that they're just as valuable as boys? Why are you continuing to flaunt the story of Eve to every single girl that goes through church? Why are you condemning women when they are just born as little babies with a womb? Why condemn them? And maybe if we stop condemning women and we start celebrating women and we start honoring women, we actually will stop the very thing that you're so upset about. You know, that's kind of like my kind of greatest question is, um, is anyone going to take personal responsibility for their own family systems and clean this crap up so that it stops happening? Not like force other people to do the work for you. Yeah. Well, again, I think it's a, they, these people want so badly for their women, their girls to be innocent and we're not innocent anymore. And we don't, it's not an innocent that. world. No, we don't need that anymore. But the innocence, the vir their virginity, you know, virgin purity is gone you know it's gone and it's just so sad for people that they can't protect their women and girls from this sexual world meanwhile if they train their women to be empowered and to love themselves and hey go get a vibrator you know <laughs> you wouldn't have a lot of this stuff going on if you keep teaching women that they need a man to be complete then you're going to keep having this problem show up because their own lack inside is what's causing them to seek a guy in the first place if you go out of that paradigm and you stop that process, then women become self-sufficient and self-sufficient women make better choices than women who are dependent upon approval or validation or a family system that is basically wants them to be powerless so that they can be taken advantage of. So once again, it's like if you want to stop the system, you've got to actually change the, all the fundamentals of how you think about yourself, how you think about women and what their uses and and that all has to change. The whole ideological package has to change to stop this problem from happening. Yeah, yeah. I believe it truly is. And that's why, again, boy, there's so much pushback because women are done. They're done with this nonsense. And it's really pushing us to, you know, my greatest hope for this conversation for my book are that these, <laughs> this becomes a like a historical moment in time that people look back on and say, wow, you had to be so courageous. You had to be so, you know, so brave and so have such conviction to, because I can't believe you're living, you lived 
through that time. I'm hoping it becomes a historical thing. You know, we're uh, uh, 50, 100 years, hopefully not that long. But, you know, women look back on this and say, what the heck? Because it's just so alien and strange and unnatural. Yes, exactly. So The Holy War for the Womb, beautiful. I know that people can get your book on Amazon. Yes, uh, it's called The View from the Clinic. And they can also go to your website, theviewfromtheclinic.com. Is there anything else you want to share before we conclude our episode today? Um, no, you know, I, it was interesting. This is a, a first book for me. I wasn't an, I, I was not a writer by background, but I am now. And I feel really compelled to, to say that if you want to look into this a little bit deeper, the stories are all there. It's a mosaic. It's a mishmash. Some people don't really like that, but that is the life of a nurse is that mishmash of people like just coming at you with different stories, different situations. And I did record this as an audio book. I learned how, I mean, I narrated it. I, I was a college professor for a while too. So if you're just too busy to pick up a book and a lot of people are, you know, the audiobook. Just, just listen, just listen while you're doing your dishes or folding the laundry or out walking the dog. Just listen because you're going to, be able to get some of the nuances and the perspectives of a, a person, a nurse who has cared for hundreds, if not thousands of people who have been through this. We're hearing the stories of people, of women and people who have been through it personally, but just listen from the perspective of being a fly on the wall or you know, the nurse who's just serving humanity. You're going to get a lot out of that. I'm hopeful that people that people just open their hearts and just are a little bit curious about what this world is so that once so that you can you could get inside the clinic and and you can um, sort of take it in as a part of you. You don't have to do that work. I'll do it for you. Yeah. And educate yourself beyond your perspective, whether you're really, really staunchly pro-choice or really, really staunchly pro-life. Like there's there's stories in there that that will challenge all anyone's perspective in the book. I've been reading it. It's really good. So I recommend it highly. The only way for us to become more conscious is to expand what we're conscious of, what is to listen to the stories and, and to actually open ourselves to different perspectives and not stay mired in one perspective doggedly, like uh, isolating ourselves from most of humanity so we can keep our perspectives. That's when you know that you're kind of on the wrong track. Yeah. <laughs> if you need to do that, then your perspective is probably not totally in truth. Anyway, moving on. So thank you so much for having us on the show, Patrice. Beautiful, beautiful. I love um, everything you're doing. I think it's really important to have these this, this perspective. And I recommend everybody to share this out with anyone you think that you're brave enough, courageous enough to share it out to. I welcome you to do that. And uh, thanks so much for doing that. And now we're going to give people kisses. I always give people at the kisses at the close of the show. So we love you guys. Here's some kisses. <laughs> Mm. all right everyone we'll see you next time next week on soul nectar show have a great week everyone bye for now if you found even one gold nugget in this episode of soul nectar show will you do us a favor will you subscribe like and share this episode maybe even write a comment and let us know what you thought about it We really, really want to engage with you at a much deeper level. Let's be part of community together. Have a great week, everyone. Bye for now.
To dive in deeper to nourishing conversation, visit soulnectar.show. Take a sip from the drip of nectar, from the source of who you are.